Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. A very warm good morning to you and welcome to Talk Back Gardening. We're back in the studio this week, John Lamb. Good morning. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. And I'm very happy to say that this morning we're able to recommence giving you soil temperatures in Adelaide. The Bureau stopped publishing those back in September at a critical time and uh, we've now got a very reliable source thanks to Living Turf. Living Turf is an incredible organisation that collects data uh, on soil and turf across Australia. And they provide a, a management service, or a technical service, to the managers of the sports grounds and to all the uh, government services, uh, government uh, uh, parks and gardens. And, and uh, they collect this information, provide this service, and they've decided... Well, they've agreed that we could have access to their information. And so as from this week, we'll be able to give you yesterday's soil temperatures for two locations and at two soil depths. That, that is fantastic news because, of course, we lost the opportunity to do that around tomato season last year. So stay tuned for what Jerry Charlton's got to say in just a moment. And, of course, a huge thank you to all of the wonderful people who turned up to our outside broadcast last week. We celebrated the inaugural Harvest Garden Festival for the Open Gardens SA scheme at the beautiful home, Bellevue Garden, in Unley Park of Keith and Glenda Rudkin. And thank you very much to them for having us. And of course, when you paid your ticket to come in, or it was free during our broadcast, but when you bought your ticket for the Harvest Gardens for the festival, part of that proceeds went to Oz Harvest. Now we're going to find out this morning how much was actually raised across the weekend. So and we'll talk to Alana Roberts from Oz Harvest. But let's. And don't forget, later in the program, I've got a couple of uh, February ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away as well. So do stay tuned for that. And if you're in your garden, because it's a beautiful weekend this weekend, you can take us with you whilst you're out there doing your weeding or doing your planting on the ABC uh, Listen app. Just put that on your smartphone and choose ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Jerry Charlton is... A turf consultant with Living Turf, the organisation that collects all this data around Australia and, and, and provides this technical data to all the turf managers or turf managers all around Australia. Wonderful service you provide there, Jerry, and thank you very much for making information available to ABC Talkback Gardening. That's okay, John, and uh, great to see you, Deb. And John and listeners. Yeah. Look, coming to grips with what you do and how you do it is is hard to understand. And what I'd like to do is you've been uh, involved with the turf industry for 20 years and, and uh, for the last 15 years uh, you had your own consultancy, which is now part of Living Turf. But... Uh, Probably one of the major things you did was involved with setting up a code of practice. A code of practice, you say. And if you can imagine, back in the uh, 2008, around about then, when we were having droughts, uh, we had people concerned about water, all the water we're putting on our lawns and things like that, and it was being wasted. And in the government parks and gardens, people were concerned. And Jerry was invited by the South SA government at the time to help establish a code of practice. So, Jerry, let's start with what's a code of practice and why is it so invaluable? <laughs> well, John, the um, at, 
at the time, back in 2007, I was the manager of parks at the city of Salisbury. And uh, we're in the middle of the millennial drought. And uh, the impact of water restrictions on home lawns, but also on public irrigated open space, was, uh, was very dramatic. And I guess the government and uh, SA Water, in terms of putting those restrictions on, were putting um, parks, sports grounds in the same category as home lawns as a luxury, if you like, so that um, uh, if restrictions came in, then we were restricted in the public sector of irrigating those important areas in the same way a home lawn was. So you established a code of practice of how to use water more efficiently. Well, we tried to get across to the uh, the decision makers the fact that the community health benefits, especially if there's going to be restrictions on green space, of the irrigated public open space was very important. It wasn't a luxury, it was a necessity. And uh, we were able to get that through, but we, we formed a, a group of local government managers. We formed a group called the Turf and Irrigation Technical Group uh, to provide advice and information. And we, uh, I guess, recommended that we create a code of practice so that we can articulate and detail what best practice irrigation management was and make that, rather than restrict the use, make best practice the uh, the aim of what and we're trying to achieve. has it been effective? Give, give us an idea of how much water perhaps you've been able to save or the, the governments have been able to save as a result of. Well, in that period, I guess the code came out in 2008 and up until 2011-12, which was the break of the drought, um, the government said, local government particularly, had to reduce water consumption by 20%. Now, Given the fact that we were able to manage it ourselves without restrictions, we reduced by 50%. So we went over and above what the, what the requirement was and we were still able to maintain. We had to brown off a lot of areas, a lot of verges and non-functional areas, but the critical functional areas that benefited the community, the sports grounds, uh, play areas around playgrounds, those high-function areas were still able to be irrigated sacrificing some others and achieving the, the savings required. So well, Before we take a look at uh, using data for home gardeners, uh, perhaps we just need to uh, say uh, you, the, the information you gather, I suppose, is, is about water management and, and, uh, and the use of fertiliser. Um, so Living Turf uh, gather data. Uh, well, how do they do it, I suppose? Could you just briefly explain the fact that you've got probes all over the place and what they gather and how you use I, it? I, I guess the principle of, uh, of, of living turf is, is one of scientific turf management. So living turf have developed a uh, platform, if you like, called Turf Forensics. And Turf Forensics gathers a whole lot of data um, in regard to um, uh, soil, water... Um, nutrient status, um, pathology of, uh, of, of the turf and collects it and puts it all in one place. There's actually a, 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 um, an app called My Climate that, uh, that uses all the climatic data and you can put in a, a postcode and it will give you the soil temperature, it'll, it'll give you the uh, humidity, uh, a whole range of information that impacts on the turf. A little bit like uh, when we hear the uh, downy mildew um, uh, warnings 
I mean, the people who use the app can see when conditions are particularly susceptible to different types of uh, Ds or conditions that might be adverse to the turf health. Let's look at it now from a home gardening point of view. Home gardeners look at their lawn and... uh, uh, Perhaps we need to be more aware of the fact that there are different types of grasses, summer grasses and winter grasses. Just briefly, what's the difference between the two and their comfort zones? Well, I, I guess the, um, the the warm season grasses, the ones that we're used to in Adelaide, basically the kaikuyu, uh, cooch um, and the buffaloes, they uh, grow in, in warmer conditions and uh, their optimal growth soil temperature would be between 22 and 32 degrees, whereas the cool-season grasses, the ryegrass, uh, fescues, and those uh, those species, they prefer the cooler um, temperatures, and their growth optimum growth range is around about 15 to 25 degrees centigrade. All right, so let's look at the summer ones, the summer grasses, the kuchun, the buffalo and the kaikuyu. Their comfort zone is that sort of low 20s. Uh, That's why knowing the soil temperature is is pretty important. Uh, Could you explain how you use perhaps uh, uh, that those probes and what you're doing is you're gathering uh, the movement of water through the soil how does how, how do you make use of that and turn that into sort of information uh, for gardeners? Well, the probes that we use, John, are four-stage probes. They go down to 40 centimetres and there's a sensor at 10, 20, 30 and 40. So we can, we can gather information on the movement of water, uh, soil temperature and salinity at, at each of those depths in the soil. What that provides us with, and it's, it's, it's about un, unravelling the mystery, if you like, of where the water goes. We can all put the water on, but what happens to it? Where does it go? And what we see is every day we get a graph, and, uh, and on that graph we can actually see at what level the water has penetrated through the soil. So that if we irrigate, and, uh, and we've irrigated effectively, what we'll find is that at 10 centimetres we'll see a rise in the, uh, in, the, in the volumetric soil moisture. 20 centimetres we'll see it rise. If we see it rise at 30 and 40 um, centimetres, we know we've, we've put too much water on because the root zone of the, of the turf is generally around about 200 millimetres or 20 centimetres. So if we're watering and we can see that we're impacting the increasing the soil moisture at 30 or 40 centimetres, we've obviously put too much water on and it's not, not doing us any good. And the cost of water is pretty high. So yeah. we really want to get that balance and we can see through the soil moisture how much water we're putting on, whether we need to um, take our irrigation program back if we're putting it on for 60 minutes, we're irrigating too much. Uh, especially on a sandy soil, we can take it back to 40 minutes. Okay. So a great amount of information. There's a lot of, as you say, forensic data available there. Uh, as a turf consultant, just your observation of home garden turfs, are we overwatering or underwatering? Generally, I think, and it's pretty hard to, to say specifically you're overwatering or you're not. But generally, if we've got, and a lot of people are house proud, and that's fine, and, it's, and I've got a nice lawn myself. And uh, generally, when the lawn gets green, 
the more water you put on, it doesn't get greener. It'll, <laughs> it'll get softer and more susceptible to, uh, to heat stress and to fungal diseases and that type of thing. Um, I suspect that probably 20% overwatering occurs uh, in, in a home lawn. Um, and really, I guess what we want to do is achieve a hardy turf, a hardy lawn, without overwatering. And the way to do that is to reduce that and have a look and see where the stresses come. And over time, you'll get that balance. Is it possible for the home gardener to do what you just did did before? You sort of said, once it's green, it can't be greener. But if it's not green, uh, you know that it's not getting enough water. Uh, How can a a home gardener look at their lawn and and interpret that in terms of its water need? Well, I I guess one way of doing that is to sort of dig into the soil. And and there's always the best thing ever is to have a look at the soil underneath underneath the turf. Um, very difficult, I guess, in terms of having a look at the, the changes daily in soil moisture. You don't want to be digging up the, your lawn every day. Um, but really that um, visual um, observation is going to tell you a lot. And the other thing is to actually monitor how much water you're using. And you can read the metre and when you put an irrigation event on, and we can actually calculate how much water that turf will need okay so and if you know how much water you can uh, put that and link that to your observations i want to come back to this observation Uh, you come out each saturday and you look at your lawn how does the lawn differ if it if it's uh, getting too much water uh, what does it look like if it's not getting enough well generally if your lawn is lush and green and it's uh, you know it's, it's it's growing faster than you can mow it if you like uh you've probably over fertilized and over watered if it, it's uh, it's on the on the fringe, if you like, where it's uh, it's not lush, but it's a good green and it's a hardy lawn. It's not growing, it's not growing right out of its skin. Well, generally you've got a good balance there, and really for a home lawn, it's the visual aesthetics that you're after. Jerry Charlton, turf consultant with Living Turf, is our very special guest this morning. If you've got a question, we've only got him for a short amount of time, so you want to call in now on 1300 I'll give you that number again, 1300 This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Turf consultant Jerry Charlton is our guest this morning. We're looking at lawns and uh, Living Turf, the organisation that Jerry belongs to, uh, gathers a lot of data and provides information back to uh, turf managers. But we want to look at it from a home gardening point of view. And I think, Jerry, you've already established the fact that uh, maybe uh, many people are underwatering and a lot of people are overwatering. And you can probably uh, tell that just by looking at the lawn itself. And if it's lush and green, maybe it's getting too much. And uh, if it's not, uh, if it's looking dry, I presume on the other side, uh, that's the time to give it a bit more water. Is it possible to say? When to water and how much? Well, I guess, John, it's um, you know, it's 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 a complex question, and it's one that we in a sports turf situation, um, there's a lot of detail goes into actually um, developing water budgets uh, and decide and and determining how much water the the turf plant needs. Now we can do that looking at the the weather data. 
Um, the whole thing's driven by the amount of water that's lost from the soil through evapotranspiration and uh, the deficit in the soil because we don't get the rainfall. Obviously, if we get rainfall in summer, then it balances the losses through evapotranspiration. Now, what we can do, it's very hard to predict, and what we do is set base irrigation schedules and base irrigation requirements looking at long-term climatic data, evapotranspiration and rainfall. And then we can set each month how much the water needs and how often we'll need to water given an average year. Okay, that's that's very, very technical. Um, there are little weather stations you can buy from you know, garden stores yep. and uh, hardware stores. Uh, are they good enough to be able to uh, tell you, okay, this is the evaporation, you need to water now, or it's rain, don't water now? Well, often you can get, uh, and now the um, advanced irrigation controllers that link to those weather stations will do those complex calculations for you. And they so, work? Oh, yes, yeah, some do, if they're set up correctly. Okay. It's about the, the, <laughs> the data important. in. But, and, and that's where the mystery lies, and that's where soil, soil moisture sensors actually tell you how much water and where it's gone. So it's a combination of those. And mind you, you know, we're talking about average, um, average climatic data. This year, uh, evapotranspiration was 10% less than average. Rainfall has been around, this is at uh, West Terrace, rainfall's been about 17% higher and the irrigation requirement is 30% lower than average. So it's really about working out what the irrigation requirement is over the month developing a schedule and then making adjustments to that for the actual climatic variances or the weather variances. And we can do that. I, I've worked with Stefan Palm, who's been on this program, yes. <laughs> and we've developed a home lawn um, programming calculator that he uses when uh, people get, get instant lawn and, and things. He can actually give that to them, and it gives them a guide. And it uses the science, but it simplifies it so that you know, it gives a guide as to what that base irrigation schedule would be and then people need to adjust it according to the heat wave or the rainfall that we get over the season. I like the KISS principle. Keep it stu- <laughs> uh, simple, stupid is what they say and it works um, certainly a lot of the time for home gardeners. Got some calls coming in for you, Jerry. Jerry Charlton, Turf Consultant, is our guest. Nathan in Mount Barker, uh, welcome to the program. What would you like to ask Jerry? Uh, good morning. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I'm uh, up in, uh, in Adelaide Hills uh, looking to lay some turf. It's about 400 square metres that I want to uh, lay. It's a heavy clay soil. So we've used a lot of recovery mulch. We've used a rotary, rotary hoe to churn that all through. Um, I guess my question is, you know, what more needs to be done before that um, instant turf goes down? Oh, thanks, Nathan. Um, look, in terms of uh, preparation before you uh, lay your instant turf, it's important. It sounds like you're doing the right things. You could probably put some gypsum on um, just to, to uh, add to the friability of that and, and create the aggregation in that soil. Um, really important, uh, that preparation, is that we have a good soil structure so that we've got good... Um, uh, porosity in the soil we've got good pore space and then if it doesn't get too much traffic um, it should maintain that so even with a heavy soil 
you can have a really good result because you've got good um, airflow, you've got good water holding capacity. So it's really about that preparation. It sounds like you're doing the right thing, Nathan. Yeah, thank you. Is that um, airflow in the soil? Is that what you're talking about? So the more matter through the, the, the soil? Well, with a heavy clay soil, what you've got is very small particles, and if they become compact, um, it blocks out the air. There's no space for air in there or water to come through, and so that's where you get your problems. But where you've got good aggregation and what gypsum does and good um, manual cultivation, it creates aggregation, creates pore space, and allows water and air to come into the soil. Great, thank you. And just one last thing, I was listening about the probe that you're that you were talking about, where it measures the um, you know, temperatures going down. Can they be purchased, um, you know, from hardware stores or as a, from a specialty store? No, it's more a, a technical uh, technical equipment, and they can be quite expensive. Um, you can get soil moisture sensors that are quite uh, reasonably cheap that that you could put in in the. Uh, you know, down at a depth of maybe 150 mil. Um, so it varies. It depends on what information you want uh, and what you're going to use them for. But but there are um, soil sensors, if you like, that are suitable for the home lawn. Uh, and if you went to one of your irrigation specialists, they'd be able to talk you through that. Thanks, Nathan, for the call. We better move on. Jared is in Achunga. Uh, good morning, Jared. Good morning. Um, my question, I've got... a bit over 3,000 square metres of a lawn um, kaikuya uh, and we're very well established. Uh, it's uh, automatically irrigated and, um, you know, look, well looked after in terms of fertilising uh, and I use wetting agents and uh, granular gypsum on it as well. Our bore water is about 1,200 parts um, per million um, but I get these sort of two to three, four um, patches, like quite large patches in the same spot every year um, that dry out and go quite yellow. Um, I've tried a celeprin for um, lawn beetle. Um, I've added extra wetting agent to those areas, but they just seem to yellow off every year. Mm. Um, whereabouts are you? Uh, in, in, in a chunga in the Adelaide Hills. So okay. have got heavy, heavy clay soil. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a nice lawn there and you're doing all the right things. Um, look, uh, not really sure, just, just by the description there, it sounds like you're dealing with a black beetle, you've got the wetting agent. Um, so, yeah, really it's about getting someone to have a look and making some diagnosis as, as to what, what is the problem there. It could be a compacted area in the soil. Yeah, and there are uh, certain kinds of fungi like the... Uh, a rhizoctonia, it sort of sets mm. up a, a, in a little sort of round patch and it sort of extends. So, uh, And there are a number of, of, of fungal diseases, and depending on... You, know, you might have a little area where it's probably a little bit uh, uh, more damp than the rest of the area, and it mm. starts up a fungal problem. But I think your idea of going to a turf consultant or yep. a, a turf uh, organisation, and there are uh, people that provide... or oh, just the irrigation people would, again, be able to give you that kind mm. of advice. And there are a lot of um, text questions questions coming in about irrigation but we're not going to have time to no, cover no. those this morning I'm sorry but also just just on that one you, you might go to the living turf website because on there they've got some diagnostic information on different uh, diseases and different problems and also a section um, on domestic lawns so you can do that great thank you very much Jared just a couple of quick questions on the text line because they're coming up from a few different people is there a right time to water the lawn 
when it's dry, when it needs it. <laughs> okay, but, but in terms of daytime, morning, just, yeah. evening, afternoon, when's the uh, best look, time? Look, um, evening watering is good. Uh, don't water in the heat of the day. You, you're losing a lot of uh, water through evaporation. So I, either in the evening or in the morning are, are good times to water. And this one, uh, it strikes a, a chord with me. I was actually going to ask you this. Uh, Suzanne uh, has uh, three large bottle brush trees on the front lawn, which covers half the shade uh, of her garden in and in leaves. The lawn is patchy and looking dead. I know that feeling myself, Suzanne. Um, can you grow anything under those native trees? Look, it's very difficult and, uh, and the sunlight is the key. Um, so really it's about understanding where the turf is going to grow and, and be healthy. And you can uh, look at other treatments in that circumstance. I mean, I've had the same problem, and uh, and even golf courses um, and sports grounds. If you look at things like the Adelaide Oval, they've got to use lights to actually provide the sunlight to grow, because the the stadium stands restrict the sunlight. So uh, that sunshine, that sunlight is critically important, and if you don't have that. It's very difficult to have a healthy, healthy lawn. Are you able to say which of the summer lawns uh, have got the greatest tolerance to shade? Oh. I, I wouldn't like to say without sort of. Um, no, that's okay. Looking no. for it, but no, but no, really, no. most of them struggle. Yes, it's, yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. yeah, and Stefan Palmer will suggest. I yeah. think that probably the buffalo is is probably the greatest yeah. tolerance in in that area. But as you say, uh, uh, you've got to know what you're doing. Yeah, and uh, some areas where there's just not enough light, you can have. Uh, uh, sunlight but you can also have just bright light but you've got to have lots of it to grow the plant just one more question from my uh, area if you wouldn't mind jerry because we're also seeing this coming through as a theme uh, because we've had so many people along the river murray who have had their lawns inundated Uh, vic of nil dotty for example says does black river water affect the health of the lawn Uh, Look, I I think the issue of the flooding, um, and Stefan was on last week uh, speaking about that, um, is one that's going to be a problem for people. In fact, a colleague of mine from Living Turf has been up in the Riverland this week looking at the impact on sports ground, so I'll be interested to talk to him and see what what his observations are. But look... um, the, the the real problem, and I won't go over what Stefan said last week, but it's the anaerobic conditions, the fact that there's no oxygen, the fact that it gets covered in silt, whether it's Black River water uh, or or any of those flood flood waters. I'm not sure whether you know you differentiate between black and brown or or whatever, but prolonged inundation is going to be a problem. Um, as it subsides, as it is now. Um, there will be some surprises because it's mainly Kaikuyu and it's very resilient. Uh, very hard to get rid of when you want to. And uh, and I think you'll find using the, the practices that Stefan spoke about, removing that, that covering of silt, aerating the soil, making sure you get some oxygen back in there. And it'll be amazing how many sprouts come up. And, uh, you know, hopefully... Uh, before too long, there will be good indications of growth. Yes, and the lawns will grow, but also the weeds, and we'll <laughs> address that one later on. Yeah. And we will be trying to uh, access some of the people that have got good 
sound, reliable information on not just lawns but also gardens, the effect of uh, the floods on fruit trees and vegetables. And uh, we're trying to track down the right people that can provide Mm. that information and that will be provided over Talkback Gardening in in the future. Uh, I think we need to say thank you very much, Jerry, for your information. Absolutely, Jerry. It's uh, been a real pleasure to have you in. And like all Talkback Gardening guests, once we have your number, expect (laughs) a call from us. I'm sure we'll have you back in. But you are going to be providing these soil temperatures to our Talkback Gardeners um, at ABC Radio Adelaide. So thank you very much for that. Have we given out the temperatures yet, John? You're just just about uh, to do it. Just about to say, (laughs) right. So, uh, Jerry, at this stage, I sort of suggested, why don't we have two locations? We'll have one located at Gawler and the other one at Walkerville. And uh, maybe later on we can bring on uh, another one, maybe Glenelg or something like that. But um, And we take, so there's two stations and uh, we'll take a look at the soil temperatures at two d- depths at 10 centimetres up near the surface and 20 centimetres where your shrubs and your fruit trees have got lots of their roots there. So at Gawler, um, at 10 centimetres, it was 21.8. And uh, at Walkerville, it was 21.5. Beautiful. Yeah, lovely. Nice and warm warm and comfortable. And if you go down a little bit more, at 20 centimetres, Gawler was 21.5 and Waterville was uh, 21 degrees, capital C. Okay, so there's still even that that depth, that very warm. The interesting thing is uh, the soil temperatures will drop about four degrees a month. So, nice and comfortable at the moment, and I'll get a little boost because of next week's heat wave coming, and then you'll find that uh, by the end of March, uh, the temperatures will be four degrees lower than they are now, and then May, there'll be even another four degrees below that. And that has a very significant uh, effect on on the growth of plants. And in terms of vegetables, Jerry was talking about the effect uh, on lawns, but uh, in terms of vegetables, put your vegetables in now, they'll be twice as big and twice as productive as they will if you put these same vegetables in probably in May. And it's all to do with soil temperatures. So Wonderful. they're important, and thank you very much, Jerry, for making this information available to Talkback Gardening. And, of course, with the information will be also uh, published in the Good Gardening newsletter each week. Thanks, John and Deb. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jerry. Lovely to have you in the studio. Cherry Charlton from Living Turf. Deb Tribe and John Lamb, Talkback Gardening with you this morning. We would love to hear your general Talkback Gardening questions for John. The time to call is right now. one 891 Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. We are going to your general talkback gardening calls now, so jump on the phone if you'd like some advice from John between now and 10 o'clock. I've also got a couple of February ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away as well. Lee is in Kingston in the southeast. Lee, you've got uh, strawberry plants but no fruit. Yes, I'm back. probably getting about five or six runners to every strawberry I pick off them. The plants are absolutely huge and healthy purchased them from a big gardening centre. What's wrong? Could be they're growing too vigorously, I think, there, Lee. You say that producing runners, uh, they're, they're long runners. Yes. Uh, yep. Okay. Um, did they have fruit early in the season? Uh, no. Right. When, when were they planted? Um, back this last uh, winter. 
Righto. So uh, a lot depends on the variety you've got. Some varieties uh, grow very vigorously and will produce a huge crop in spring, and then that's all you'll get. And what happens then is after they've had their harvest or produced their harvest, uh, they produce runners. And uh, you've either got to chop off the runners, otherwise all the energy goes into producing new plants. Um, and But they'll only produce once a year. And there are much better varieties, in my opinion anyway, that actually are what they, I call ever-bearing. They don't produce as much when uh, in a season, but they continue to have uh, strawberries throughout the season. But coming back to your problem, Lee, I think probably you've got uh, a plant which is very vigorous, and it may be the variety, is you're only going to get one crop uh, a year, and that was in spring, and because the plants were too vigorous, uh, they didn't settle down. It would be worthwhile just um, taking off the runners, unless you want to propagate new plants, uh, but take all the runners off, and don't over-fertilise, and don't over-water, um, but, but don't let it stress for want of water. Um, and I think uh, if you can just calm it down a little bit it should come back into fruit production uh, be careful with your fertilizers a good balanced fertilizer and one selected for fruit and flowers it has a little bit of extra potash in it and uh, they uh, potash doesn't make plants uh, fruit or flower but if you do get the flowers uh, it helps uh, fl- the flowers uh, set and and produce better quality fruit Okay, thanks for that. Thanks very much, Lee, for the call. Appreciate that. Let's go to Greenock now. John, uh, your grevilleas aren't growing too well. No, I've um, I've had a, a lot of problems with them. We've um, put put on some chelate um, uh, type material to try them. They're looking yellow and trying to get them growing, but but uh, they're the Robin Gordon types. Uh, okay, and Robin Gordon is a typical one. Uh, if there's a problem with uh, too much alkalinity in the soil, uh, you'll see the leaves going yellow. Uh, when you say you used iron, how did you use it? Put it into the ground? Or? Oh, on a, with the liquid, with the watering can, uh, uh, right. over the leaves and over the, uh, the ground. Yes. Um, the material you put on the ground will get you... Uh, 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 tied up very very quickly I think probably rather than using a watering can you probably would be better off using a sprayer if you can mix it up uh, so that it's in a liquid form put it into uh, one of those little misting bottles or spraying bottles and mm. uh, or if you've got a sprayer but spray it onto the foliage uh, iron yeah. will go straight into the fol- into the leaves um, anything you put on the ground won't be of any value in terms of overcoming the iron deficiency problem. And you might have to put on a couple of applications each year. Um, Eventually, if you wanted to, you could improve the amount of organic matter in the soil and uh, that would help overcome the problem of the iron being uh, not available to the plant. But that's a a long-term problem of uh, over two or three years getting more organic matter into the soil. But uh, in the meantime, spraying it onto the leaves, I think, would be far more effective than using a watering can. 
Yeah, so I wonder whether I persevere with this or, or, or try some new plants because they're looking pretty miserable couples. Well, I think that's a good decision, John. Yeah, uh, sometimes there are plants which just don't grow well in that location. Fine plants, and there are lots of Australian native plants, many of your melaleucas in particular, but uh, go, go to a garden centre and ask for uh, plants, a, a range of plants which grow well in alkaline soils. I think you'll be much happier. Yeah, we we do have a lot mm. of variety of different plants and they are doing pretty good, actually. Great, John. Well, thank you very much no. for calling in and, and good luck with uh, finding other plants to take over from the grevilleas. Paddy is at Port Hughes. Are you creating a raised garden bed, Paddy? That's what my wife is deciding to do. Um, we're getting a bit early bending over for a uh, veggie garden, so they're quite large, as you've seen in certain uh, hardware shops. Now, by filling with soil, it's going to take a fair bit of soil to fill the container up. Now, my wife went to Dr Google and Googled what we could do, and the suggestion there was that uh, fill three-quarters of the containers up with, with uh, hay and the rest with uh, soil. Yeah, how deep is the raised garden bed? It'd probably be about, uh, probably just over, probably metre, just say about three quarters of a metre. Okay, well that's a fair amount of depth and so you need a large amount of uh, uh, soil, or not potting mix, I won't say soils. Uh, yes. Uh, you need a good growing material. Uh, you need at least 40 centimetres of good soil so let's say you've got, say, 70, let's say you've got 80 centimetres depth um, and you need 40 centimetres of good potting mix or growing material. So you could put something in the bottom 40 centimetres. Some people use old uh, uh, vegetable crates, plastic vegetable crates, <laughs> and then put some uh, shade cloth on top of that, So, and then put the soil on top of that, and uh, the shade cloth, uh, and I say shade cloth rather than plastic because you've got to have drainage going through. Don't use plastic, it's just straight plastic. But uh, the important thing is uh, you can have your raised bed of whatever height, but you need at least 40 centimetres, maybe a little bit more of growing material. Don't use garden soil. It's not good enough. If you do use garden soil, you need to uh, have... Uh, uh, it, it, probably it aerated and probably the, the easiest way from my point of view is to use uh, perlite get a bag of perlite and, and uh, mix it up say 10 or 15 percent perlite in with your your garden soil and also some good quality compost so uh, if you've got your garden soil you maybe have say one part of compost uh, three parts of uh, good uh, garden soil and maybe a bag of perlite and mix them all up and use that as your growing material. Mm, so, in other words, if we say a third of the container can be put up with straw? The bottom, yeah, we can use straw, but just bear in mind that uh, you need to have it sort of squashed down, otherwise uh, uh, the whole thing will sink. But you'll find that over uh, a couple of years, the soil, the straw will break down, mm. and so you'll have to keep on adding more uh, material on the top, good quality potting mixy material, and ideally a, a mixture of potting mix and compost is is, is ideal. 
uh, say, a three bags of, of, of potting mix and one bag of, of soil improver would also be a good uh, uh, material to put on to grow. But if you use straw, it'll, di it, <laughs> it'll disappear on you over a couple of years and you'll have to keep on topping up. Right, look, thanks for a great feature. Thanks for it, and lovely show, both of you. <laughs> thanks, Patty. Hope you get lots of yummy, productive uh, veggies from your raised garden bed. If you've got a question, now is the time to jump on the line. Not too many minutes left in Talkback Gardening. The phone number is 1300 991. It was so wonderful, wasn't it, last weekend, John, to see so many faces, I think over... 300 people came through the gate at Bellevue Garden in Unley Park whilst we were broadcasting, which is sensational. Yes, and, and our garden, or the garden where we're doing the outside broadcast, was one of 12. So uh, it was just a wonderful opportunity for people to take a look at productive gardens and ask people questions. Exactly. So much learning to do. But one of the things that went along with the inaugural Harvest Garden Festival was the fact that proceeds um, of the ticket that you bought for either four gardens or all went to Oz Harvest. We are going to find out in just a moment how much money our generous gardeners gave to Oz Harvest. So stay tuned for that. We'll be speaking to Alana Roberts in just a moment. Call in with your gardening questions, 1300 891. And if you haven't won anything from this station in the last month and you would like to get your hands on a February ABC Gardening Australia magazine, I've got two to give away. Call in on that number. Right now, one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Talk back gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. Well, as we said, the inaugural Harvest Garden Festival was held last weekend. It's a brand new initiative of Open Gardens SA. And as you said, John, 12 gardens from Strathalban to Semaphore uh, were open to allow us to go in and look at the productive side of gardens. Sometimes we go and look at the beautiful side, the flowers and the wows, but this was all about you know, growing your own and so many productive gardens here in South Australia. Now, John, we had 300 at least through the gate at Bellevue Garden and thank you again to Keith and Glenda Rudkin for letting us broadcast from there. Guess how many people visited across the weekend, all up? Well, if we had 300, 300 by 12, <laughs> although probably uh, the one at, at uh, the Rudkin's Garden would probably be a little bit more than most because of the outside broadcast. But, uh, Eight. Thousand. Eight thousand. Eight thousand um, visitations estimated. So that's pretty fantastic. And of course, all proceeds from the festival were donated to Oz Harvest, the charity partner for the event, to support their food rescue operation and food relief services. So, how much did generous gardeners raise? Let's ask Alana Roberts, engagement coordinator of Oz Harvest. Good morning again, Alana. Lovely to meet you last weekend. Morning, Deb. Morning, John. Um, yeah, it was awesome meeting you guys last weekend. Now, how much money did the inaugural Harvest Garden Festival raise? Um, we're so grateful for Open Gardens for um, choosing to support us, but uh, the totals is a whopping $30,000. Wow, $30,000 from one weekend. Yeah. Now, um, that's incredible. Yeah, and I just wanted to say thank you um, not only for the volunteers at Open Gardens for um, getting this event off the ground, but also for the 12 garden open owners who um, chose to 
open up their garden for a whole weekend and let people come in to raise valuable funds for Oz Harvest. It's amazing. Now, you told us last weekend that every dollar donated to Oz Harvest ensures two meals can be provided. So give us an idea of what impact the funds raised uh, from the uh, inaugural Harvest Garden Festival is going to have for people here in South Australia. Yeah, exactly. So one dollar is two meals. So um, that's an additional 60,000 meals that we'll be able to deliver across uh, Adelaide and Victor Harbour. So um, that equates to about 30,000 kilos of food that we can save from landfill and deliver directly to people in need um, throughout our 104 charities in Adelaide. So that's 60,000 meals, I understand. 60,000 meals um, that will be donated to people in need. So we are beyond grateful for the amazing support. And it's not just about providing food, it's also about preventing food waste, it's also about saving water because all of these um, investments are made into our productive gardens and um, obviously you can't take produce from home gardeners, you take it from from very large places, but everything that's raised um, that doesn't go into landfill is a benefit to the environment as well. Yeah, definitely. So food that we collect is destined for landfill. So we're all about redistributing food um, that has already been produced and that would otherwise go to waste. So the impact from this donation will allow us to prevent 198,000 kilos of CO2 emissions um, emitted through food waste, um, which equates to over 4 million litres of water through food production. That's incredible. um, Alana, last week in our discussions we were talking about the fact that many people want to grow fruit and veggies and they just love growing it and but they don't grow uh, as much as they could simply because uh, there's more than they can handle and the concept of uh, uh, can people make use of that and, and give it away to charities and you indicated the reasons why uh, Oz Harvest can't do that but you mentioned that there were other charities that will take the food. Is is it possible to create a a list of those uh, organisations? I'd like to have that and maybe uh, we can uh, use it from time to time and I'd certainly like to publicise it in in the Good Gardening newsletter. Yeah, definitely. It's um, something we can explore. Oz Harvest just can't get to all the projects at the moment purely because we have four vans out rescuing like 40,000 meals a week, so we don't have capacity to take on any more at the moment. But, yeah, like you said, um, there's all these individuals out there who are growing their own produce and we don't want it to go to waste. Um, So at the moment, we encourage you to look up. There's a website called Ask Izzy and you can look up your local charity, which is taking food donations. Um, But, yeah, I'm more than happy to chat with you, John, and we can create a list of charities uh, in, in Adelaide that would accept all right. Well, over the next two or three weeks, if you when you got time, uh, time, <laughs> yeah, time, sure. time. Uh, yeah, if, if you can do that uh, and send it in mm-hmm. uh, via Deb, maybe, and then we can use it on ABC and the Good Gardening newsletter. That would be and wonderful. I just think that there are so many people who love grow. I just think of my dad. He used to love growing <laughs> veggies, and he'd give it to all away to all the neighbours. And even then, there was more left over, and the <laughs> the leftovers were given to the cow. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it was. 
Papa's eaten like father, like son. Yeah, so that uh, for those people that love growing but want to be able to do it and know that it's Mm. going to a good home, I think that's a good idea. Well, Alana Roberts, we're so thrilled that uh, generous gardeners in South Australia raised $30,000 for Oz Harvest. Thank you very much for joining us and we look forward to keeping in touch over the coming year ahead. Thank you, and thanks again to Open Gardens and all the garden owners that um, supported us. Thanks, Alana. Alana Roberts, Engagement Coordinator of Oz Harvest. Congratulations to our two uh, ABC Gardening Australia magazine winners. Two Lynns, would you believe? Lynn in Herbray and Lynn in Hackham. That is quite uh, funny. Let's go to Melrose Park now. Faye, you would like some advice on fertiliser to use on what particular plants? Just on everything, actually. Um, I'm, I'm... quite aged now and uh, I found I was I had some super phosphate from the country and I just sort of sprinkled it all around the garden um, and everything just burst into and and so I bought NPK and I just sort of chucked that around um, onto pot plants and with the exception of geraniums I don't do it on geraniums um, is is that beneficial, or should be? I being am I am I doing enough? Oh uh, yes, a little bit often is probably a good solution, but. Uh you're using an NPK. Be very, very careful. You're using what is called a concentrated or manufactured fertilizer, and yeah. so you'll find if you put on too much, uh, you'll burn the roots of the, uh, certain ah. plants, and they're sensitive to it. Uh, but uh, uh, look at the things which grow quickly: uh, fruit trees yeah. and vegetables. They grow quickly, and they produce lots of uh, either fruit or vegetables, which and that material is taken away from the area. So you've got a, uh, the nutrients are depleted and by putting on your fertiliser on those areas, give those priority, you're restoring the, the nutrients which are taken away in the fruit and the veggies. Whereas the ornamental gardens, uh, just by putting on compost and letting the leaves go and make into a mulch, is probably all you need. And I think uh, uh, if you're going to use your NPK, it's nothing wrong with that. It's uh, very, very well balanced. But I certainly wouldn't be using too much at any particular time on a particular plant. So just just say once every two months? Well, I would suggest that uh, you've got two growth phases. Plants grow in, in phases and you'll find in springtime they put on vigorous growth. <coughs> just at the beginning of spring is a good time. They'll put on another spurt of growth in autumn. So early autumn is another good time to fertilise, particularly fruit and vegetables. Thank you very much, Faye, for that call. <coughs> now, John, on the text line, lots of people saying... Wow, look at the weather coming up this week. Today, beautiful, sunny and and mild. But next week, uh, from really Tuesday onwards, we are going into a very big heat spike, in fact, a heat wave, if the predictions come true. People asking, when do you put shade over? What should we be doing? Well, shade cloth will be the thing that will protect your fruit and your vegetables. And particularly people that will put in new seedlings of veggies to sort of uh, take advantage of the uh, uh, extended Indian summer that we're going to have. Um, I think 
putting on shade cloth, but when you're putting on shade cloth on vegetables, you only need to put it onto uh, the western side or the very, very sunny side. What you're trying to do is reduce the amount of sun uh, directly onto the plant. So if you've got tomatoes, you put your toma- shade cloth over the top and on the western or northern and western side, and on the eastern side, leave it open, leave it quite open, and you get light there, you get the best of both worlds. In terms of temperatures, plants will start to stress at 32 degrees. So if you want to be able to put your th- shade cloth on and take it off on a daily eight, th- as soon as the temperatures are forecast for 32, make sure you've got your shade cloth on. And when it's only going to be 25 or 28, uh, you don't need your shade cloth. But many people put their shade cloth on at the beginning of January and they leave it there until the end of February. That's the time when you'll have lots of days above 32 degrees. And uh, so you can either do it on a single basis or uh, on a regular basis. Okay, so you've been warned. (laughs) Let's hope all of the gardening shops have got lots of uh, white shade cloth, John. And what's the percentage that we should be looking at? At 32 degrees is the temperature, and you need shade cloth of 50% shade cloth. And I reckon it's time for me to bail out, Deb. So I'll say until next week, good gardening.